Do you like where you live? I don't, uh, I don't mean your home, your apartment, your city, your state, or your country. No, I mean, do you like where you live in the course of human history? You like where you live. Maybe you like where you live in history because of modern technological advances and conveniences. Um, some of you here this morning maybe used a, a blow dryer. Uh, that was nice, right? Um, some of you used an electric razor. It's nice to have a, com- a computer that's not the size of a room that's able to fit into your pocket um, in the palm of your hand. Even perhaps when you were picking out your clothes this morning, you said, hey, Alexa, what's the weather uh, going to be like today? Maybe you like living at this point in time in history for, for some of those reasons or, or other reasons as well. Uh, modern medicine. I'm not going to make the case that this is the best era that the world has ever seen. This is certainly not the necessarily the best time to be alive, but I will say that there is a, a certain privilege to living on this side of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 27, which we read earlier today, the Apostle Paul, he, he tells us that since Jesus Christ has come, the, the mystery once kept hidden for long ages has now been revealed. There's a, a certain benefit to living on this side of the cross, to being able to look back at the work of Jesus Christ. It's it's beneficial to be able to look back and delight in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And in, in God's providence, we this morning, we turn to study Psalm 85. And we're able to learn this lesson from the saints who have gone before us. What it looks like to, to look back with delight on what God has done in the past. And from these saints... Uh, will also, Lord willing, learn to look forward with joy and hope. So if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Psalm 85. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find Psalm 85 beginning on page 493. 493. And while you're turning there, let me offer just a little bit of background for our study. The Psalms, as you may know, are a... uh, a collection of 150 prayers, poems, proclamations, and songs of the ancient people of God. As a whole, the Psalms teach us that the people of Israel were prayerfully and patiently waiting for God's anointed king to come and to inaugurate his kingdom. The Psalms are collected into five different books, and Psalm 85 is found within the third book of the Psalms. Book 3 uh, seems to be filled with psalms from the people of Israel petitioning God to look upon them with favor and to make his promises to Abraham and David, made them, make them known, to fulfill them, to bring them to pass. Generally speaking, these psalms are, are asking God to give his people relief, to uh, end their suffering, perhaps especially in view is the suffering of the exile. As we'll come to see in Psalm 85, there are specific references to God's people and to God's land. And here's where we need to remember the the storyline of the Bible, too. The very beginning of the Bible is concerned with God expressing His glory to His people in His place, His land, under His rule, His law. In other words, the the concepts of God's special people and God's special land are built into the very fabric of the opening of the Bible. In love, God creates a land in which He plants His people in order to have intimate fellowship with Him. Adam, the first man, he rebelled against God's good command. And turning to folly, he and his wife, Eve, they disobeyed God's word. And God, he cast them out 
of his good land, the Garden of Eden. Before exiling Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, God promised that he would send a redeemer and king to rescue his people from the punishment that's due to their sin, eternal death, and to restore them to his presence. That's the story of Genesis 1 to 3. And that story is recapitulated and expanded in varying ways throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And as the story rolls along, God's people are expanded into the people of Israel. They're given a land, the promised land of Canaan. Like Adam, they're given a command. But like Adam, they also disobey God's commands. They disobey God's law. And their disobedience leads to a similar consequence. Just as Adam was removed from his garden land, so the people of Israel are removed from their garden land. And that was God's punishment upon the people of Israel. But God's punishment did not obliterate his promises to raise up a king and establish his eternal kingdom. So Psalm 85 is a song of longing. Longing for, for restoration, really for, for ultimate restoration. For God to make his purposes of redemption final and complete. And all of this should lead us, quite naturally, to think of Jesus Christ. Who was, or has come, to redeem sinners and restore them to God's promised land of heaven. So with these things in mind, let's read now Psalm 85. Take a look at Psalm 85. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what, the Lord, what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Well, I hope you noticed the, the flow of the psalm as we read. At first, there is a, a backward glance, a kind of looking to the past and remembering God's forgiveness and love. And then the psalmist turns to express the present distress. Finally, the psalmist looks in hope to the future, petitioning God to act for the good of his people and the glory of his name. We're going to unpack this psalm with those three movements in view under the following headings. The happiness of the past, the heaviness of the present, and the hope of the future. Let's begin with our first point, the happiness of the past. And as we do, read the ascription and the first three verses again. And notice their orientation to the past. The ascription there. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. 
you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. As we've come to see in each of the psalms we've been looking at in this short psalm series over the last uh, several weeks, what we encounter here, what we've encountered before, that this psalm was a psalm that was meant to be sung. It's, uh, it's clear from the ascription, as well as that little word there at the end of verse 2, you see that word Selah. No one is 100% certain about what Selah means, but the general consistency of of Old Testament scholars is that it's a, a musical notation of some kind. It's most likely a kind of pause, kind of as you're singing, you come to that phrase, you pause, you reflect upon what you've just sung, and then you keep going. The, the author of this psalm is apparently part of the lineage of the company of Korah. Uh, those who identify themselves as the sons of Korah are responsible for at least 11 psalms in the Psalter. And in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 9, verses 19 to 21, we, we learn that some from Korah's lineage were doorkeepers at the tabernacle. Uh, they were in various ways associated with the worship of the tabernacle, the worship of God. God's presence at his house, the tabernacle, and then later the temple, was something of a display of his favor upon his people. But what we notice here in verse 1 is that the perspective of the psalmist and those who are, are singing is that of a backward glance. He's looking back into history. He's remembering the happy time when the Lord looked on his land with favor and restored the fortunes of Jacob, which is just another way of referring to the people of Israel as a whole. This, uh, this first verse, it contains a Hebrew parallelism. This is a very common in Hebrew poetry. A statement is made, and then a, a complementary parallel statement is made. It's not so much expressing a different idea as it is expressing the same idea in a different way. For God to look on his land with favor is for God to restore the fortunes of Jacob. And for God to restore the fortunes of Jacob is for God to look on his land with favor. People and place, you see here, are bound together in this parallelism. Both are recipients of God's kindness and blessing. This is a kind of favor and blessing that's comprehensive and Holistic. It's reminiscent of what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God declares his love for his people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, God tells his people that they are chosen and holy and dearly loved. He calls the people of Israel to obey his commands. And then he promises this blessing in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13. There we read, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give to you. You hear the favor and the blessing of God upon his land and his people there in that verse. For our psalm, it's not exactly clear what occasion in the past the psalmist is, is looking back to. And we don't really have to know. All we need to know is that the, the psalmist and the people of God, as they sing, are remembering God's past acts of blessing and favor and deliverance upon them and upon their land. Still, we must notice that this favor in the past came in connection with the forgiveness of Israel's iniquities. Did you notice that? Came in connection with the forgiveness of Israel's iniquities. Don't you appreciate how honest the people of God, the ancient people of God, spoke about their wrongdoing. Right? They, they called it iniquity. It sounds so much more severe and honest than we, you know, when we use uh, the phrase, like, I, I made a mistake. It was, an, it was an error, uh, kind of 
was a lapse in judgment. Well, the ancient people of God knew what sin was. It was iniquity. It was rebellion. It was evil and wickedness. It was an attempt to usurp the divine throne from the God of heaven and the author of life. The scriptures present sin as an offense against God. And we should be shocked and appalled and recoil in horror at iniquity, transgression, and sin. Brothers and sisters, there ought to be a a soberness and a sensitivity to sin in our lives. We ought to grieve over our sin. We ought to be undone like Isaiah. We ought to pray for God to give us a sorrow that will lead us to repentance. I don't know what you think about the prayers of confession in our services, but they are a most appropriate practice. Maybe you think that they're a bit severe or or austere, but I have found that over time they have taught me how to better confess my sins. We, We don't like to confess our sins, but truth be told, for those who confess their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We find that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Of course, we must always keep God's amazing grace in view. And yet a danger that we're prone to run into is that when we diminish our iniquity down to ideas like mistakes, then we necessarily diminish the radical nature of God's grace and forgiveness. I appreciate how uh, Chris Bronze describes forgiveness in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness. He explains that forgiveness is, quote, a commitment by the one true God to graciously pardon those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him. That's a useful and careful definition of forgiveness. God forgave the sins of his people and he dealt with their sins too. The idea that God dealt with his His people's sins is embedded in the idea there at the end of verse 2. Do you see it there? We read that God, He covered their sin. Now, when when God deals with our sin, He does not pretend that uh, it doesn't exist. Um, Sins are not like kind of dust that's swept under the rug and left there as a little lump. It's not there. No, that that covering that God does is is far different. Covering... Is, is certainly in the mind of those who sang the song was a blood covering. In the Old Testament, when the people of God sinned, an animal, uh, usually or often a lamb, had to die for their sins. They had to, to take a lamb to the temple or the tabernacle. They had to place their hands upon it. They had to slit its throat, collect the blood, and cover the altar with, with blood. That's the covering that had to take place in the Old Testament. The excruciating, painful, death-laden, bloody covering. And notice that God covered all their sin. You see that there in the text? God covered all their sin. When atonement was made, when blood covered their sin, God's wrath was satisfied. Atonement assuaged or propitiated or satisfied God's wrath against their sin. The manner in which God has dealt with our sin is just and satisfied the righteous requirements of His law. Atonement, this blood covering, is what justly allows God to turn from His hot anger and withdraw all of His wrath for His people or on His people. And we can't pass over this crucial fact that God is made angry by sin. He's not merely perturbed. No, as we see here in Psalm 85, He is full of passionate, all-consuming, fire-tinged anger and wrath. Sin is a transgression of His law. 
It's an offense against Him. So let's recognize what God is doing when He forgives. He is graciously giving us what we do not deserve. That's what He has done in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, perfectly free of iniquity. And yet He died. He died bearing the just wrath of God against our sin. Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, as we read in John 1.29. The Apostle Paul even uses the ideas of blessing, of favor, of forgiveness and covering, found here in Psalm 85 in Romans chapter 4. In verses 7 and 8 of Romans chapter 4, Paul writes this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Every one of us here this morning knows that we have sinned against the good, holy, just, and righteous God, the living God. The only question that each of us here this morning needs to wrestle with is have our sins been covered? Have our sins been covered by the blood of Jesus? Have your sins, not in part, but the whole, have they been nailed to the cross so that you bear them no more? Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what we want you to know about Jesus, that He gave His life on the cross for sinners like you and me. He took all of God's wrath for sinners like us. He died bearing the hot anger, the passionate, all-consuming, fire-tinged anger of God the Father. And He, He was laid in a grave, a stone-sealed tomb, and He remained under the power of death. Until God the Father vindicated His name. Three days after His death, God raised Him from the grave, proving to us all that divine justice had been satisfied. Jesus' resurrection proves that there is now, therefore, no condemnation. There's no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, friend, I urge you to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to think more about what it means that the work of Jesus covers all of your sin. And please do come and find me after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about this morning than this good news that Jesus' blood covers all of our sins. Christian, there are several applications that we need to draw from these verses. First, we are in a similar place to those who first sang this song. We too look back on a happy day on the day of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day when God forgave us of the iniquity of our sins because of Jesus. We look back to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So let us learn from those who have gone before us. Let us look back to God's great redemption in Jesus Christ. Look back and remember that all of your sins have been covered by Jesus' blood. So when the accuser is whispering to you, you're guilty, you can say, I am And Jesus has paid it all. And all to Him I owe. I am guilty. And Jesus Christ has set me free from the law. The curse of the law. The curse and condemnation and guilt. Look back and rejoice that Christ was your substitute for sin. And that God has turned His wrath away from you. We must especially do this when, like the ancient people of God... We encounter seasons where the difficulties of this life seem heavy. 
Which leads us to our second point this morning, the, the heaviness of the present. As we consider this, our second point, the heaviness of the present, read Psalm 85, verses 4 to 9 now. Psalm 85, beginning there in verse 4 to verse 9. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Well, these verses, they're, they're filled with petitions, pleas, questions, and, and really glimmers of faith, too. The, the texture of this poetry is so faithful, I think, to the heaviness that we experience as believers in this life. In the face of hardships, don't we vacillate back and forth like what we see going on here? We, we vacillate back and forth between calling out to God in desperation, asking questions of Him in our circumstances, and asking Him to act, and, and yet, sometimes even expressing faith. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you through this, Lord. Well, after having reflected on past restoration, verse 1, the psalmist with the people of Israel petitioned the Lord yet again for restoration. Oh, Lord God, you have restored us before. Restore us again. They, they recognize that only God can save them, rescue them, restore them from their present distress. We don't, we don't know what the heaviness of the present is for them, but they ask God to, to put away his indignation from them or toward them. Uh, this should probably remind us of what we read there in verse 3. Let's observe that in all of this, the psalmist and the people of God do not charge God with wrongdoing. But they do ask. They ask, how, how long will we have to endure your anger? You see that in verse 4? Twice, actually. Verse 5 might, might even be another way of restating the questions of verse 4. As the, the questions, they pile up there, we can feel something of the weight of the distress that the people of God are under. Christian, I wonder, did you know that you can ask God questions? It's okay for God not to answer. But you can ask God questions. In our questions, we ought to be careful not to charge God with wrongdoing. We ought to be careful not to sit in judgment upon God. But of the many things that the Psalms show us about how we may relate to God, one of them, one of the things they do show us is that we may ask questions of Him. Just as children ask questions of their fathers or mothers. We can ask our Heavenly Father Questions. Now, in some respects, the, the questions we find here in our passage, they're, they're actually rhetorical. Right? After all, we're, we're reading poetry here. Will God be angry forever? No. Will He prolong His anger to all generations? No. Will He revive His people again so that they may rejoice? Yes. Yes, He will. And do you know why? Do you know why? Because He's faithful to His promises. He has made promises to deliver His people from their distress. He has promised to send a Redeemer. He promised to give them a home in heaven. And He, He is a faithful God. So He's going to keep His promises. We can ask our questions 
But let's not fail to present our petitions to God too. The questions are followed by three petitions in this psalm. Verse 7, you see there, show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. If we're not careful, questions, they can drown us in sorrow. But petitions, they inherently begin to call us out of ourselves. Petitions, by their very nature, require us to look to God for help. That's what we do when we're asking God. We're we're looking to Him for help. Children, youth, young people, do you realize that when we petition the Lord, that is, when we ask God for things, that we're admitting we need help? See, asking a question, asking for help is inherently a humble thing to do. Have you tried to manage on your own, to do things on your own? Maybe you've tried to do that for so long that you forget that God can help. Uh, in the past, there have been times where I've, I've felt overwhelmed. I've said to myself, Lord, who's, who's sufficient for these things? And you know what I should have done? I should have said, Lord, help me. Uh, give me wisdom. Give me strength. Give me energy to serve you. Children, youth, let me encourage you to ask your parents or a mature Christian friend about how they rely on God for help. Make them give you a specific example. How, how do you go to God for help? Make them give you a specific example and don't let, them, don't let them get away until they do give you one. Then ask yourself, ask yourself if you could use some help too. Ask yourself, are there ways I need to call out to God? Let's go back to verse 7 again. You see verse 7 there? What does it say? It says, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Think for a moment on the psalmist's first petition there. Show us your steadfast love. God's love has a a particular quality and character. His love is steadfast. It's, It's unmoved. It's unchanging. God's love is relentlessly persistent. Very often, God's love is tied to His covenant promises to His people. This petition may very well be appealing for God to bring His loving covenant promises to pass. Brothers and sisters in Christ... Shouldn't we petition God to make His steadfast love known to us today? Shouldn't we pray, Lord, show us your steadfast love? And when we we make that petition, we're asking God to make His presence known in our lives, known and felt. He promised never to leave us nor forsake us. We're asking to know the comfort of God in our lives. We pray, show us your steadfast love. We're also asking God to bring out the consummation of of His covenant promises in Jesus Christ. We're praying, come, Lord Jesus. Show us your steadfast love. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus promised to us that He would come again. And when He returns, He will return in love to bring His people home to the promised land of heaven. This petition, it coincides with how we can offer the second petition of this psalm today too. For the people who first sang this psalm, Their petition for God to show them their steadfast love and grant them salvation was bound up with deliverance from the heaviness of their present troubles and ultimately the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people who first sang this song were situated in a place in history where they were still waiting for God's saving act of redemption to take place in Jesus. We, however, we're in a decidedly different Situation, different place in redemptive history. We look back. 
We look back at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when we take up this psalm, when we pray this petition, grant us your salvation, we may certainly mean deliver us from this weighty problem. But ultimately, what we are asking for is for Jesus to return. When we pray, grant us your salvation, ultimately, what we're asking for is for Jesus to return. We're asking for God to bring about the consummation of His saving purposes in Jesus Christ. The third petition you see there, found in verse 8, is peculiar. Let me hear what, the Lord, what God the Lord will speak. And consider why this petition is made. Because there's faith. There's faith present that when God does speak, He'll speak peace. He'll speak peace to his people. Now, this petition is peculiar because we've suddenly shifted from corporate language down to an individual. Right? Is this petition being spoken on behalf of the gathered congregation, perhaps by one individual? Maybe. Another possibility is that what is happening here is that the gathered congregation is, is corporately, as kind of one person, Asking as one people to hear the comforting word of God. Lord, we're standing before you together as one people and we're asking for you to speak to us. That may be what's happening here too. Either way, the the peculiar nature of this petition may be to kind of emphasize that there's actually a shift taking place in the psalm. For from here on out, there's a kind of snowball effect. There's certainty that's building At bottom, the third petition here is intimately related to the previous two. Love, salvation, and peace. What more could the people of God ask for? Show us your steadfast love in the past. Show it to us in the present. Save us from our suffering. And above all, give us peace with you. In the fullness of time, God was pleased to reveal His steadfast love, His salvation, and peace. He was pleased to speak a word of peace in His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul's words from Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, should be ringing in our ears when we read verse 8. Paul writes, For in Him, that's in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And, and do you know what Paul goes on to say in his letter to the Colossians, he goes on to say, stay rooted in Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy, foolish, empty deceit. Colossians 2, 8. In other words, Paul goes on to say what the end of verse 8 says. Let them not turn back to folly. Establish your people. We could put it in the words of Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. You see, the grace and mercy of God never permit us to return to sin and foolishness. Rather, God's grace and mercy prod us. They push us to draw near to the Lord in obedience and love. Some time ago, I was asked about what I might say to a believer who was struggling with sin, who was struggling, was being tempted to turn back to folly, as Psalm 85 says. And as believers and church members, this is something that we all want to think through, as Lord willing, we're we're sharing our struggles with one another, our burdens, our sorrows, sharing the, the heaviness that we experience in this life. 
In a, in a situation like that, what would you say to a believer who comes to you struggling and, and feeling the weight and the heaviness of their sin and not wanting to turn back to folly? Well, we should offer them encouragement, instruction, and prayer. It's, it's important to encourage, to, uh, to remind, to reassure our struggling brother or sister that being burdened by our sin may very well be indicative of the Spirit's presence in our lives. John chapter 16, verse 8. The fact that we are burdened by our sin and struggling against it is a normal part of the Christian life. What is not normal is passively giving way to sin. And so we want to encourage our brother or sister to keep struggling against sin, keep confessing it, keep repenting of it, keep fighting and keep praying that the Lord would give you continued sensitivity to sin. It's also important to give our brother or sister some gentle instruction. So give encouragement, keep fighting, but also give instruction. As Christians, we need to understand why we do the things we do. While we have been given the Holy Spirit through our faith union with Jesus Christ, we are still in the process of being delivered from this present evil age. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. While we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, we have not reached the glorified state. And so we are still battling with indwelling sin and its effects. This fight is indeed a, a personal fight, but it is also one that's being worked out in the course of redemptive history. This is the fight of every believer until God in His grace consummates His final purposes in Christ. So in conversations like these, we also need to remind our brother or sister of the truth that since we have been united to Christ by faith, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Moreover, we must live in the power of Christ's resurrection from the dead. We can fight sin. That's a gentle instruction you need to give. When your brother or sister is feeling helpless, you can say, no, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can fight sin. And I'm going to be here with you. You must fight sin. I'm going to help you fight in the power of the Spirit. So keep fighting. We are alive in Jesus. And in the words of the wonderful old song, we are clothed in righteousness divine, which means we must be bold to approach the eternal throne. Given this, it would be good and right for us to pray. We should pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the most encouraging things for me as a pastor to see in this congregation is brothers and sisters in Christ praying for each other. So very often after the service, I'm standing at the back door and I'm watching you all talk to one another and care for one another and minister to one another. And part of that, from time to time, I see you praying for one another. That is a wonderful and normal Christian thing to do. It is not weird. It is a normal Christian thing to do for one Christian to stop and pause and pray for another Christian. And when I see that going on, I'm encouraged. And I'm often praying in my heart for your conversations and prayers for one another. I don't know what you're praying about, but I'm so grateful to see brothers and sisters extending spiritual care to one another through conversation and prayer. So let me encourage you to keep doing that, to keep sharing your lives with one another as we gather here and in different places throughout the week. Keep ministering to one another 
after the service and throughout the week. Keep sharing portions of God's word with one another and keep praying for one another. Let's remember that the Lord has spoken peace to us in Jesus Christ. And let us remember that this means that we ought not turn back to folly and sin. As I mentioned earlier, God's grace and mercy ought to prod us to draw near to the Lord, to fear Him, as verse 9 says there. This verse may call to mind the time when God abandoned the temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 10 recounts that sad day. But here in verse 9, there is faith that restoration will come and God's glory will return. In Israel's, in Israel's history, the, the history of the temple was uh, eventually rebuilt, but it was a shadow of its former glory. And what is more, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is the new temple. So in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus, he told his hearers, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then just a few verses later, the apostle John reflects on Jesus' words in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 22. The apostle John writes, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. You see, salvation came near, and the fullness of God's glory dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. He is the new temple, the temple that was rebuilt in His resurrection from the dead. And we are united with Him. And Paul calls us the temple as well. We're part of that end-time temple. Well, verse 9, with verse 9, the heaviness of the present seems to be fading, and the hope of the future building Verses 10 through 13, there in those verses, there appears to be an intensification of this great hope of the future. So let's return now and consider, uh, turn now and consider our third and final point, the hope of the future. Read uh, verses 10 to 13 of Psalm 85. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord Yahweh will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Well, in, in verse 10, we are greeted with some of the most beautiful poetic and prophetic phrases in the Psalms, and perhaps in all of Scripture. God's never stopping, never giving up, persistent love, His covenant faithfulness are said to meet. God's righteousness, which is another way of saying His justice and peace, are said to kiss. Where else in the course of history could this have taken place but at the cross of Jesus Christ? At the cross, God's steadfast love and faithful promises are united together to satisfy his righteous demands, and secure peace for his people. This is why we sometimes sing these wonderful words from uh, William Rees' hymn, Here is Love. That's why we sing these words. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect Justice kissed a guilty world in love. 
Brothers and sisters, just think about how God's steadfast love began in the garden with the promise to Adam and Eve, that seemingly small promise that he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent. Think about how our God so steadfastly loved his people over hundreds and hundreds of years to so fully display his love in the cross. He was faithful to maintain his promises, to keep the hopes of his people alive, even when their hopes seemed as good as dead in the exile. We as Christians have this history, the Old Testament and the New Testament history, for a reason. To show us, to remind us, to persuade us of the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. We have this historic testimony from God for another reason too. We have this history of redemption in our Bibles to show us that God is just and the justifier. He keeps His promises in accordance with the demands of righteousness so that our forgiveness is legitimate. No one can call into question God's justice and righteousness. Because of Jesus' cross, the accuser, Satan, is left without an accusation. It's an illegitimate accusation. It is at the cross that righteousness and peace kiss, passing Christ's righteousness to the unrighteous, and so securing peace between God and repentant sinners. Isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? There Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through, through our own works? Through what we've done? No, Paul says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The place in which you stand before the Lord is a place of grace. His unmerited blessing and favor upon you. And Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now in that verse, Paul said that believers rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And, and I think that this is connected to the land imagery that we have in verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 85. C consider what is adjoined to this earthy imagery. Faithfulness, righteousness, goodness, and increase or, or fruitfulness. Every aspect of this picture is glorious. And those who first sang this song were looking forward to this future. When, when Jesus Christ secured for us salvation at the cross, He not only secured for His people a promise of pardon on principles of righteousness, but He also secured for His people a home in glory, the new heavens and the new earth, where the whole created order will be marked by faithfulness, righteousness, and goodness, and fruitfulness. We have a comprehensive salvation in Jesus Christ, a restoration of peace between God and man, and a restoration of the created order. We thought a little bit about what it would mean for God to bless His people and His land in our first point in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And for fun, uh, if you were to go back this afternoon and read through those promises found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'd probably say to yourself, like, this just sounds too good to be true. These promises, they, they sound like God is going to give His people paradise. And if that's your reaction to Deuteronomy 7, and just as a hint, that should be your reaction to Deuteronomy 7, that God is going to give His people a paradise, 
then I think you've probably got a good sense of what is being promised there in Deuteronomy 7. You see, the Old Testament promises, the Old Testament people of God, they were looking forward to entering Canaan, to that physical promised land. But more than that, they were looking forward to entering into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. See, the Old Testament believers knew that Canaan was a type, a shadow, a pointer to something greater beyond itself, a shadow of what was to come in full. The writer to the Hebrews informs us of this in Hebrews chapter 11, of Abraham, of the very one to whom the land promise was made, of Abraham, we are told in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10, that he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, just six verses later, we're told that those who drew near to God and feared Him in faith, they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one, the writer to the Hebrews says. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. That's what Old Testament saints were looking forward to. The glories of the new heavens and the new earth, that they would taste only partially a glimmer of what was to come when they entered into Canaan. In due time, brothers and sisters, our God will give us that good and heavenly land. And until that time, we walk in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness marked every one of His footsteps. Every thought for Christ was a righteous thought. And we need that from Him, don't we? We need that from Him. We need for every thought for Jesus to be a righteous thought because not all of our thoughts have been righteous, have they? We need Him to think righteously in every single thought because we haven't thought righteously in every single thought. Every word for Jesus was a righteous word and we need that from Jesus, don't we? We need Jesus' every word to be a righteous word because as we examine the words that have come out of our mouths over the course of our lives, or even in just the past few days, not all of them have been righteous. And every deed for Jesus was a righteous deed. And we need all of Jesus' deeds to be righteous. We need all of His deeds to be righteous because all of our deeds have not been righteous. We need such a Savior. And we, we've been given such a Savior. Jesus lived in perfect righteousness that we might receive His righteousness by faith. And now, having been made righteous in Jesus Christ through our faith union with Him, the righteous are called to live by faith. That's our calling. We must make righteousness our way. Because we live in the hope of the future, the hope of glory. And as we conclude, I want us to, to think about these things. Those who first sang this song, just like those who first sang this song, we too look back to the happy past where Christ bore our sins and so turned God's wrath away from us. Like those who first sang this song, we too live honestly before the Lord. We should live honestly before the Lord, confessing the heaviness and the difficulties of this present life. And like those who first sang this song, we live longing for the day when Christ our Savior calls us into the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. May these longings be on our hearts each 
and every day while we wait for the coming of Christ our Savior. Let's pray together.